All right, welcome everybody to 2022's first episode of Cyber Cybercast. I'm Tom Bain, your host, as usual, and we're super psyched to have Tari Schreider from Ite Novarka, one of the premier analyst firms that focuses specifically on financial services. Tari, welcome. Thank you, Tom, and I'm uh, happy to be your first for 2022, so just be gentle with me. I will, be, I will be gentle, I won't bite, and we're going to have a blast today. And, it, you know, for, the, for our listeners today, too, it's interesting that you focus, so you have, obviously, I wouldn't be talking to you if you weren't in cybersecurity, but you focus specifically on the financial services segment specific to cybersecurity needs, challenges, patterns, trends, interesting companies, new developments, innovation, Give us at least a, an overview before we kick off into our line of questioning here on kind of like what, like what is your role all about? Right. So, um, so I've been with IT Navarca now for uh, it'll be one year, uh, February first. And uh, IT has been around for uh, sixteen years, almost exclusively in the financial services area, and then also added insurance. And uh, it's a, a boutique firm, uh, 26 uh, analysts. Uh, we're now called strategic advisors. So we're, we're uh, you know, maturing as the industry matures in nomenclature. And it sounds and, cooler. Um, yeah, it sounds, sounds, a little bit, <laughs> sounds a little bit cooler. But when my, uh, when my daughters would ask me, so what do you do now? I says, well, I'm an industry analyst. What is that? It's like those people on CNBC, only I don't get it to go on CNBC. And so I said, oh, I get it. So then when they said, oh, well, what's a strategic advisor? I said, just call me an analyst. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, so what was interesting was in 2019, uh, a good number of uh, ITA's customers were saying, hey, listen, we love all the stuff that you're doing for, you know, lines of business within financial services, but we really would like to see some horizontal stuff with cybersecurity. So the cybersecurity practice was born. And uh, so uh, it's been uh, just about three years now. And uh, uh, I was not really looking for anything at the time because I was uh, fully engaged in teaching um, CISO certification courses uh, and also uh, writing cybersecurity books and doing some private consulting. So I did that after I retired from Hewlett Packard as uh, chief security architect. And uh, so I got a call one day and, uh, you know, the gentleman said, hey, listen, um, we're looking for to build out our practice for cybersecurity and we're looking for more industry analysts. Would you be interested? And I said, well, I don't know. Let me learn a little bit more what you're doing. So all of make a long story short is like, so I already researched the industry. I have a passion for writing and now you're just going to pay me for it. So it's like, it's kind of a no brainer. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is that the other side of the house that's very focused on financial services and payment processing and retail banking and wealth management, um, cybersecurity really doesn't care where it sits. Um, and it's really a horizontal practice. So in, in my world, although there's some idiosyncrasies in the vernacular of financial services, there really isn't anything that that's dramatically different from an e-commerce company or hospital and what have you. We're pretty much using the same technologies. We have the same threat landscape. Um, so it was, uh, it worked well. I, 
had uh, had quite an education getting it. You know, I did a lot of projects over the years for financial services companies and banks and credit unions and insurance companies and that. But I've had quite a bit of an education. I I know more about credit card processing now than I ever wished I ever knew. Right. <laughs> Too funny. Well. And at some point too, credit card processing is probably going to be a thing of the past, given sort of the the innovation curve that you and some of your colleagues at ITE get to take a look at and get to take a close look at, knowing that you work with some of the largest financial services companies in the world. Yeah. So what's interesting is that it's the it's monetization drives everything in our world, and right now when you look at the uh, visas and MasterCards, uh, Amex, Discover, and so forth, you know, they're uh, sort of like the interbank processors and they take their fee. And then you have the upstart uh, payment processors that are, you know, sort of a slowly eroding their business model by going more direct between the consumer and the merchant and making a payment. But that's still a very small part of the marketplace until the market really finds out a way to do settlements through, you know, alternatives to things like Fedwire and automated clearinghouse and so forth. um, You know, we're still going to be beholden to to the large companies. But this is where, you know, I, I turn my attention you know, things like blockchain and cryptocurrency and how, you know, a third rail or, or other uh, alternatives for settlement and clearing funds could actually occur outside of the government purview. So that could be pretty interesting. And so I think it's a pretty dynamic market right now. Super interesting. Well, you and I have definitely done some interesting work together so far this year. I am yeah. certainly looking forward to working more with you this year and kind of seeing what you have on tap for other areas of, of cyber within the, with the backdrop of financial services and kind of what that looks like and what some of those trends are. But, you know, what I think one thing that would be really interesting is give us a little bit of an idea of like how, like you, I think we know how you've arrived at ITE, but you've got a pretty diverse background. You've held positions at HP, at uh, Internet Security Systems, ISS, um, kind of where, where have you seen kind of some of the cool stuff that have that kind of you know basically define your journey so far in cyber. Yeah, so uh, you know I've I've been in this uh, this space for a long time, and um, I actually was was really young. I started off as a key tape operator um, when I was actually in high school on a deck PDP eleven, and I think it was an eleven seventy or eleven eighty or something like that. That's how long ago. We're- can I just ask, were, were you a nerd? Yeah, I was pretty much a nerd. I was, I was the nerdy kid. I played sports <laughs> and, and was also the nerd, but, you know, somehow just through happenstance, I, I got into this, you know, key, uh, key tape operator job at a warehouse in a small town in Michigan called Bay City. And uh, it just, and I was on an airplane um, going as, uh, out to California and I met somebody and we were talking and and he goes, God, you know what? I, this would really be wonderful if you could come work for us. And I said, well, I don't know. What do you do? He goes, well, I'm the vice president of sales for a company called Transamerica Computer Associates, which is now Computer Associates. Right. And I think they've been bought by Broadcom. So uh, I was 19 years old and I was selling computer software for Computer Associates, computer tapes out of the trunk, literally out of the trunk of my car in the Midwest. That is amazing. 
And, uh, and there's a point to the story because, you know, I worked my way up from a salesman to vice president of marketing and professional services. And in the professional services area, we acquired a company that had a mainframe security product called ACF2. And uh, that's when I kind of got hooked on uh, security all the way back then and, and also disaster recovery. So very cool. Uh, so yeah, it was uh, you know it was a bit of a securitist route, but it's been uh, it's been interesting. That is that is pretty cool. I mean, the jobs that I had when I was nineteen, I know that <clears throat> unequivocally, I was a lifeguard. It was one of the best things I ever did. But um, you know, I obviously didn't work very hard, and <laughs> you know, and then I think a couple of the other jobs I had were waiting tables at a sports bar in North Carolina a couple of nights a week while I basically majored in partying and minored in lacrosse down at uh, Catawba College in Salisbury, North Carolina. So, but I don't really think a lot of that set me up well for what I was going to do professionally after college. So that's really cool. Um, one question I, I think we can, we can definitely have get some interesting perspective from you on is like, given that you entered cybersecurity and it really wasn't called cybersecurity back then, but given that you entered cybersecurity as a teenager to today, what's been the evolution from your perspective in terms of like what's changed and like how has this industry evolved? Yeah, you know, and I, I, I've thought about that on more than one occasion, get a little more, uh, give it a little more deeper thought when it's, um, you know, dirty martini night. Um, and I come back to the same thing. The problems are the same, but now they're at scale. So 35 years ago was the release of the first com commercial firewall. Well, guess what? We're still using firewalls, but they're next gen, they're cloud, they're, um, you know, application firewalls, but it's the same concept. Um, so we really haven't seen huge innovations, um, innovations where it's been like game changing. We've taken the same problems we've done things and we've, we're able to detect faster and react faster and all those types of things, you know, like SOAR technology has been wonderful, right? And, um, but, I, but we're moving along at a pace that's slower than what I think other industries are moving along at and um you know the you know there's more hackers they're able to do it more simply they have uh you know ransomware as a service um you know so you know what's interesting is that that i see these problems i mean we had databases back then we needed to protect the data so the laws and the regulations have changed substantially but with the exception of the dressing if you sort of go back in time and then look forward and say, ah, there's no way 35 years from now, we're still gonna be relying on firewalls, but, but it's still here. Right. So I'm, I'm still, I'm hoping for the metaverse for our next big change. Right, right. I, and well, like what, what does need to, given the, you know, this, this question's probably been asked maybe a, a thousand, 2000, a million times, we have, we're currently still in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah. And we like business has just changed in a way it hasn't, but it has. 
the remote workforce seems to be driving a lot of conversations around cyber and around like how do you protect employees from themselves given that they're not interacting with departmental heads or you know like folks or IT folks that have some foot into security and help to secure applications, endpoints, access, privileges, et cetera. How, like, what is, what are we to make of, of where we are right now with remote work? Yeah, I think what we have to do is we have to protect ourselves from ourselves. And we're in an environment right now where I don't think work at home is ever going to go away. I think it yeah. is just, a, I think there are economic reasons. I think there are productivity reasons. And then obviously the catalyst has been the pandemic. And organizations are realizing that and they're starting to make wholesale changes to their workforce and where individuals can work and so forth. So I don't think we're ever gonna go back to that. One of the things that has happened uh, in the security industry is sort of uh, the the ability to 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 identify and model abnormal behavior of assets and assets can either be digital or they can be human and then map that to a to a threat tree to understand you know where you're most at risk and so I think the pandemic has changed on how we're going to do and how we are doing. Um, social engineering um, uh, and awareness training and uh, behavioral analysis uh, and also uh, authentication of, uh, of users that you no longer get to see. Interesting. Yeah, the, I think that it's going to be, it's obviously going to be here to stay, but there's other issues that certainly are kind of like that, that we encounter all the time, right? And when you think about large banks, large credit unions, insurance companies are, are booming today. Um, you don't have to go any further than watching a football game and pretty much every other commercial is, yeah. an, insur is an insurance commercial. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, how, do, how do we defeat ransomware, right? Because th those are, that's what those organizations are facing, knowing that they have assets, knowing that they have the money, right? They, ha they have the funding and attackers know it. Right. Like, and, and as soon as they're, as soon as one successful ransom is captured, that gets broadcast everywhere in the, on the dark web so that other organizations and other attackers can quickly go and run another attack at them. It's kind of like this consistent, it's almost like a, a, a non-ending sort of phenomenon, right? Where it's just that you don't, you don't really ever get out from underneath it. No, and, and, ransomware, yeah, and ransomware is a threat that preys on the system weaknesses of poor IT estates and uh, poor hygiene, poor user training, lack of a security architecture. And um, it is, a, what's interesting is that the sophistication of the ransomware operators is, is just unbelievable in the type of computing resources and the technical training that they have. You know, ransomware is, you know, isn't anything that's new. The, the first ransomware was, was back in 1984, and it's just gotten more sophisticated over time. Um, you know, I think zero trust architecture is probably one of the, 
the best starts that we have to finally rid ourselves of, well, we'll never rid ourselves of ransomware, but to insulate us from us because it's trust, but verify. And you've, organizations have to stop that lateral movement because the ransomware operators will lie in wait. They will insert themselves in a network and they're very patient and they have numerous campaigns that they'll run simultaneously and then just sit there and wait trying to find the right credentials to compromise, to escalate their privilege. And then basically they hold the, the keys to the kingdom. Um, but, uh, but the other thing too, is it, it comes down to data backup. I mean, it is, it is as simple as it could be that even if you are compromised and it's a wholesale bricking of your system, at least you can wipe everything clean and restore. Unfortunately today, People don't know what needs to be backed up. They're not backing up the right things and it's poor. I think that's the that's one of the biggest issues. Like what what data do you need? I mean, at least in the in the cybersecurity world, so much of the pricing of cybersecurity products is predicated around data, right? And data storage, data throughput. Um, lots of the lots of the sim solutions, or if if not all of them, are often priced based on the data that you can store, right? And there's certain limits with some of the larger platforms where you have to offload it, and you know that the the archival costs a lot of money. I, like, what do you need, and what don't you need? And I, my assumption is part of your answer is going to be around compliance and regulatory initiatives that require certain pieces of information stored in a certain way, right? Right. I, I think we're at a point where it's almost difficult to segment out the data you need and the data that you don't need because the way in which it has been gathered and stored and used makes it almost impossible to segment it to say, this is data we no longer need, so let's get rid of it. But then from monetizing perspectives and from a historical perspective and data analysis and planning. It's like, oh, I wish I had that data. So we're at a point right now where people pretty much keep everything. Now, if the lawyers get involved, then they'll say, listen, we only want to keep things for a certain period of time because we don't want a part of discovery. And I get that. And that's all important. But at the end of the day, companies pretty much pick everything. And storage mediums are relatively cheap as far as putting the data there. Now, the expense comes in accessing the data having the analytics platform. So what happened was when SIM tools came out years ago, they were basically just an overlay. I mean, they some of them came out as appliances and they had their own disk and you know, then they didn't want to be into the, into the disk storage business. So they pretty much relegated themselves to applications and now the cloud and what have you. But basically everything goes through them. So they become a data broker. And basically the industry is the more, the more information you look at, the more threats you can find. Well, what happens is it just becomes egregiously expensive. Right. And uh, so people are moving their data to the cloud, there's data lakes. But if you look at scenarios now, if you have a, a security orchestration automation and response tool, and it has access to a vast lake of data that you can run your queries and your playbooks and do your incident response and do the threat intelligence and do your threat hunting, um, you really don't need SIMS anymore. And, uh, and I think that any, 
anybody who's in security operations today, if they're not thinking about a next generation security operations architecture that uh, doesn't rely on a SIM, is probably not doing themselves justice. Interesting perspective on that. I, <clears throat> I mean, what what is the is there an answer? I guess is is what so many CISOs and you know, I, I think it it comes down to like the ransomware is only one potential threat out there. Right. Talked a little bit about zero trust. We've talked about a couple of other areas where you can start to kind of pull pull data right in an automated way in an orchestrated way to automate a, a large scale threat response. But what's what's next? Like what's the next step there where organizations can look 18, 24 months down the road or even five years down the road? Is it like, are we looking at some level of like completely air-gapped cloud instances or which doesn't really seem possible? Or are we looking at um like what are we what are we looking at? What's that future really look like? Are the bots taking over? There's been billions. I think I, I read this week that $23 billion was invested in the cybersecurity market by VCs and private equity firms. Um, like what for spending this amount of money as a global industry, what can we expect? When can we expect the defenders to kind of like forge ahead of the attackers at some point? Right. Yeah, so there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about maybe where some of the things are going. So a lot of the data is being moved to the cloud because it's very inexpensive. Um, it's a dual-edged sword. So the data is in the cloud, so you have, in some respects, less control over it from a resiliency perspective because you're wholly beholding to. The, the Amazons, Microsoft, and Googles of the world, and unless you're you're paying for you know redundant placement of your cloud data, which which can be kind of expensive, um, you rely on them for all of your resiliency and your recovery, right. as well as your security as well. And as we all know, there have been numerous examples of cloud breaches. So it's it's not fail safe, but it's more it's more economical. So where investors are starting to put money, and this goes back to what I said before. I'm working on a report right now where I've looked at 500 investments in companies by over 100 um, VCs and PE firms. And I go through and categorize and I'm saying, so what's different? Well, I got my firewall category, I got my SOAR category, my SIEM category, my uh, identity and access management category. A lot of the categories are the same. Something that, ar that arose uh, about two years ago was something called data SecOps. And there's more products that are starting to emerge from that. But essentially what they do is they envelop data when it's created with a policy that calls in privacy preserving uh, technologies. And it will do things like uh, file GPS, where it tells you where your files are at all times in the cloud. Uh, it actually will, based upon the, the score of the file, it will uh, pull in the right privacy preserving technology to protect it at that particular time. Uh, if it is stolen and it sets off an alert, you can blow it away, you know, like a low jack. And um, interesting. So there's some other interesting things happening there. Yeah, it's well, it's certainly that 
talk about the, that's a lot of data for you to sift through certainly and looking at, okay, if we've invested in these specific categories of which there are quite a few, are we any better for it, right? Like, are we actually innovating at a pace? And I think I, my, my, what I'm hearing from you is we are not innovating quickly enough in this market. What, no, we're not. What gets, a, what gets us to a better spot in the cybersecurity industry so that we can innovate and, and at the, you know, some people call it the speed of business, but like, how, how can we just get faster and better and more precise? with how we protect businesses as attackers are levering any piece of technology they possibly can to consistently, you know, I mean, they're winning. They're, they're winning pretty much all the time. Yeah, sure, you can recover ransoms at some point when the authorities get involved and forensically you trace back to, to what happened, look at, those, look at those traces, look at those attack paths, et cetera. But, you know, how, how, do, we, how do we just prevent them from being successful in the first place at some point. Yeah. So the the one of the problems that we have with the cybersecurity industrial complex, if you will, is our approach to security is layering because we're not the OEM. Right. We're not at the hardware. We don't embed at the hardware. We're not at the application. We're not embedding ourselves in the in the code that's all done by our customers. We come in after the fact. And, and we as, a, as an industry are, are, are not experts in many of the things we're trying to protect. What we're doing and our industry is built on trying to prevent something from happening, try to prevent the ex-hacker from getting to the equipment. Right. So we're bolting on, we're not building in. And, and I don't see that changing. When I, when I worked at Hewlett Packard, I thought, well, this would be wonderful because we're going to actually design security into our products and make them, make them fail safe. And, uh, you know, we had some good wins with nonstop and that for the most part, then we ended up doing what everybody else did. We just went out and bought a bunch of uh, companies and started layering on different technologies. Right. And we ran into the same problem. So until that is, and there's lots of consortiums that are out there that are trying to, you know, bring the security apparatus closer to hardware and software, but, you know, that's a systemic problem that I don't see going away anytime soon. Certainly, uh, I, I don't think that, well, <clears throat> I would say that it's a challenge to kind of start to, the more you think about it and the deeper that you get in that, in that potential, you know, sort of line of questioning it it's scary. I think the it, it's a scary universe out there, and not just I'm not just referring to the dark web, Tari. It's like it is just scary to see, even just this past year, like real physical outcomes, negative outcomes from things like oil pipelines being hacked um, and shutting down, you know, shutting down systems that control, you know, parts of our economy meaning, you know, the, the uh, colonial pipeline attack. That right. I think was something that I, when I got into cyber 15, 20 years ago, I don't think I ever, those were the stories that you would hear about from, from pundits who would, who were really trying to scare everybody early on. Like, you know, someday this is going to happen someday, this, you know, someday pipelines will be shut down sometime, you know, someday, 
Um, you know, trains will be stopped at some, at some point there'll be self-driving cars that will be hacked and, you know, everybody will die driving them, right? Like you, and you start to think about anything that's connected to the internet. And it's like, I, I don't think we've seen the worst of it, unfortunately, right now. No, one of the, uh, one of the largest, uh, automotive recalls in history, Chrysler was a direct result of the, uh, hacking incident to, um, to their technology. And all those cards had to, had to be recalled for firmware updates. It's crazy. Well, let's, you know, let's, let's put some faith in this industry that we are going to figure some of these out and start to hopefully like close the gap where attackers are starting to really kind of win the war. Right. And it just starts with a couple of core battles. And sometimes you just don't hear about those wins, those, you know, those battles that are won. And what I'd suspect is, you know, from enterprise to enterprise, there's probably battles that are won every single day. It, they, you know, there's just nothing that's going to, there's nothing that's going to make headlines when, when the good guys win. It's always right. when the bad and guys. That's the problem is succeed. that we're not, we're not very good um, communicators about the wins because we don't want to call attention to our, to ourselves. But, it, but my experience is, is that there are, far more wins than there are losses it's just that we hear about the losses right well i'd say that's a that that's a, that's looking on the bright side i think maybe there's a, maybe there's something that we that we do in this industry where we start to highlight those wins and we start to talk about you know the the, the sophisticated ransomware and phishing attacks that are halted in their tracks and are not successful i mean i I know that certainly the industry itself would love to hear more about those, but it just seems to your point, it's, they're so private and no one really, I think there's, there's still an element in cyber of paranoia where certain organizations don't want to let on that they're using specific techniques, using specific technologies, but you know, maybe that, maybe that parlays into ISACs. As you know, Cyware has about 21 or 22 ISACs as customers specifically to, to operationalize around sharing threat intelligence um, and being able to do more with threat intelligence. What's your take on sort of like the world of ISACs and, and can, they, can, they help, can they help sort of like put, not just put defenders ahead of, of attackers, but, you know, is it really sort of, is it data? Is this industry, like, do we, do we close that gap by having more of a data-driven methodology in cybersecurity? Yeah, I've been a, a, a fan of ISACs for a long time. When I was with <clears throat> Internet Security Systems, we got the first contract to develop the IT ISAC and worked with Oracle and IBM and Microsoft and you know other companies over the years to get the first one up and running. And it was pretty interesting. And what was and the only thing that that I would say, I mean, because right now there's all number of ISACs and then there is a a new program now where um, vendors of security products or vendors in general can now submit uh, information to an ISAC to say they're having a problem with a uh, with a product or something, or they're going to make a change, or it could be vulnerable to something. But yet, it's not addressing the zero day problem because you know the information with the ISACs are are pretty interesting because it gives you something to shoot for for the threat landscape and i think that it's it's phenomenal that it's there but it, cybersecurity isn't just a financial services problem it's not just a transportation problem 
And the inter-ISAC sharing, I think more can more should occur there. But once again, it's to the it's to the exclusion of individuals who can't afford an ISAC um, contract. Right. And so I would like to actually see, you know, if the government's going to make some investments, then they make investments to help subsidize the free sharing of that information. Because once again, it's the cyber industrial com cybersecurity industrial complex, which is, you know, in it to make money. And, uh, you know, it isn't, um, you know, it's, it's privatized. So, you know, there, therein lies a problem that the rich can afford the data to make the good decisions. And so they, you know, in this, uh, in the United States, there's about 23,000 companies that are like huge conglomerates would have a lot of people. Then there's another 6 million companies that actually have a payroll. Right. And then there's millions of other ones where you have sole proprietors and that. Well, it's those 6 million other companies that are constantly getting, constantly getting raked over the coals by the attackers and going out of business and jobs are being lost because they can't afford subscriptions to ISACs. And, uh, you know, InfraGuard, InfraGuard was kind of a good start for something like that, but it's not actionable information, you know, that you can, that you can get for the, for the small guy. And right. so therein lies, therein lies part of the problem too. I totally agree. And, you know, when you think about the, the embarrassment of riches at the enterprise level, mm -hmm. the haves and the haves not, the have nots rather, um, I think it, it comes down to like, like anything in life, cybersecurity shouldn't be something that's just certain organizations can afford, right? Like there, is there a way that where it almost sort of gets democratized to a certain extent where you can like, and what does that democratization of cyber look like if you could kind of take it and pull it apart and go, okay, there's like in principle, this should be the same level of cybersecurity for company A that is, you know, at about, a, about you know, $10 billion in revenue and 20,000 employees versus company B that's 10 million in revenue and, you know, 55, 55 employees. I'm just like throwing stuff at the wall, sorry. But, you know, is there something that sort of like levels the playing field for, for cybersecurity at like at some point? Is there, is there something that could ever do that? Yeah, and, you know, there are some things, you know, one, when, I was, uh, when I was teaching CISO certification courses, I had um, a good number of, of students that came through uh, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency. And one of the things that I learned is the amount of resources that are available to virtually anybody out there subsidized by your taxpayer dollars. Small companies that can't afford vulnerability scans can go to CISA and basically get their vulnerability scans done for them. Um, we're not very good as an industry in sort of broadcasting cybersecurity on a shoestring. And, and on a shoestring doesn't mean that it's cheap and ineffective. It just means that it's affordable. And, you know, just like the, when you and I pay our cell phone bill, we subsidize rural access to phone service. So maybe we start needing to take a look at a cybersecurity tax, you know, that subsidizes cybersecurity, 
you know, for the unfortunate six million companies out there that can't afford it. Interesting concept. I mean, SMB security is always kind of a hot button. You go to RSA, you go to Black Hat, Gartner Conference, everything. I mean, like, it's always a topic of, of discussion. And I kind of feel like any of the panels that I've ever, you know, sat on or, you know, if we've sponsored some stuff that's supposed to be more specific to, you know, like a, a, a small to mid-sized business play, Tari, I, I never really feel like any of those discussions go anywhere. And the reason is because unless, if you're at a certain price point as a vendor, which obviously Cyware is, it, it almost is a, it's a non-starter in terms of a discussion with one of the operators, or even if, even if that SM, that small or mid-sized business has a CISO, right? There might, might just be somebody who runs IT who has someone who kind of handles security for the business. Um, I never feel like those conversations go anywhere. And it almost seems like, and, it, and it's hard to kind of, it, it's almost like a, it's a weird it's a weird paradox in a way, because if you think about scaling down a product and removing, fe- <laughs> removing features from a product just to get to a price point, it's like, well, what are you doing to the end user, right? And what are you, what are you, what's the message that you're sending to that business? All right, well, I'll give you, I'll give you these three features, but these like 15 features here are really only for enterprise customers. Like it just, se- just doesn't seem right. No, it doesn't. And you know, if we're going to inv- if we're going to invest money in building a wall, let's build cybersecurity walls for the SMB market. Let's put some money there. Yeah, there's got there's got to be something. There has to be something. Well, I think that that could be something that we continue in conversation and in concept, and maybe that maybe we'll solve that. Maybe we'll solve that together. I'm going to take a note here um, to come back to you on that. <laughs> right. When we when we uh, when we resume business operations after the podcast, but. What, let, me, let me ask two more questions. One, which kind of like takes everything that we've talked about today and takes your background, Tari. Like, what's the coolest thing that you've done in this industry? And is, the, is that coolest thing that you've ever done, is that the most satisfying thing that you've ever done in your career in cybersecurity? So I would say, I, I'll say what is the coolest and what is the most satisfying. The coolest thing I ever did was building out a global footprint security operations centers and traveling and working in Brazil and Japan and Sweden and Italy and throughout the United States. That would probably absolutely have to be the the coolest thing that I've ever done. That was just good fun. The most satisfying is the writing of my cybersecurity books and teaching CISOs, the next generation. Okay. What is your, what is your most, what's your most popular book? Uh, It's cybersecurity. uh, It's building effective cybersecurity program. It's a, it's an architecture book. Okay. Why, and, why do you uh, think it's your most popular book? Uh, so it is used, it is used uh, by nearly 400 universities as part of curriculum. And my cybersecurity law and standards regulation one is used in about uh, another 200 to 225 universities. Super cool. That, that's awesome. I've, I've not yet written my book and, I, and I'm not quite sure what it's going to be, but I might consult you when I when I get to that point and get some time when I'm not I'm sure you've got some good stories. I have I have some great stories. Some some probably I can't make public, but <laughs> so some I could maybe just change the names and you know protect 
the you know so the pseudo innocent um <laughs> um final question like we're heading into one of the best sports weekends of oh yeah you know of um, of american culture and we've got the afc championship we've got the nfc championship who wins this weekend why and who do you have going to the super bowl all right so i would i would want to say the bengal's over the chiefs but Patrick Mahomes is a generational quarterback. Mm-hmm. That kid is amazing in his athletic prowess. And his, his coach is, is giving him more stability on the field. And he's becoming a thinking quarterback instead of a reacting quarterback. But so I think, I think the Chiefs are probably going to take the, the Bengals out. I would, I would agree with you on that. The creativity yeah. that you see. Yeah is like, I think that's what I really like as well, too, when I watch them. And look, I'm a Patriots fan. We've lost many games to the Chiefs. I look, I look at the creativity that he brings, and it's just, you just don't, you don't see that from a lot of other quarterbacks. And I think that's really, it's, it's innovation, right? We've been talking a lot about innovation today. I love his creativity. Yeah. And when it comes to the Rams and the 49ers, I got to go with the Rams because... It's one of those, how you get to there from here is Matthew Stafford came from Georgia and played for Georgia, played for the Lions. So I live in Georgia. I grew up in Michigan and he deserved a winning team. And now he's at the Rams and I think he's going to make it happen. I'm with you on that as well, too. Not to mention the defense of the Rams is also pretty stout and they also have the, you know, the nice thing about Stafford or uh, the, the nice thing that Stafford got coming into the Rams organization was Cooper cup, who set pretty much every receiving record this year. I, and I, yeah. I, I pay attention to this Tari because I finished second in my Roto league and Cooper <laughs> cup was like my, he was like my steady, like 30 points a game player all year long. Wow. Yeah. And you've got Sam Darnold. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of talent. There's going to be my wife and I will definitely be enjoying the games this weekend. Oh, can't wait. Can't wait. Well, sorry. I can't tell you how much fun this was. I, I learned something every time I talk to you and not just on that, not just on the podcast today, every single interaction that we have is just like, I, I learned something. I apply things that, that we talk about to messaging, to different campaigns, to different perspectives and blog posts and, demand gen material so you know for for what you do for me thank you very much and like certainly i couldn't thank you enough for spending the time talking to me today about your history and cyber and kind of your perspective on things and where this industry is going so super fun can't thank you enough yeah this has been fun to come into your uh, studio and do a podcast for you i love it i love it well thank you very much i certainly hope that you can that you'll join us again and, uh, you know, hopefully we can, uh, we can, we can maybe solve some of the things that we, that we discussed. Um, yeah. certainly democratizing cybersecurity might be an interesting thing for us to take on together. Absolutely. We'll build some All goals. Right. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Tari.